Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Uh, the podcast is not in Arabic. <laughs> I start in Arabic. But speaking of Arabic, I want to give a special shout out uh, to my dear beloved friend and brother Mo Amr because for those that have been following his career, Mo Amr is just an incredible stand-up comedian. Um, he's been on the road for years and years and years, came up out of Houston, Texas. His family is from Palestine. He's somebody that I've been friends with, really close friends with for like 15 years or more. And just a really dear beloved brother to us. He opened for Dave Chappelle for years and years and years on the road. He's dropped two uh, Netflix comedy specials. The first one is called Vagabond. The second one is called Muhammad in Texas. Uh, and he just, and he also was in Rami's show, our dear brother Rami Youssef, uh, that was on Hulu called Rami. He also had a really special role in that show. Um, Mo Amr is in the upcoming Black Adam movie with The Rock, you know what I'm saying? Just doing amazing things. But Mo just dropped on Netflix his new series called Mo. Um, go and stream it. Check it out now. It's an amazing, amazing series. I'm a little biased because I know his story so well and just know him so well and have known him for so long. But this special, this series is incredible. And uh, if you listen all the way through it, you'll hear a little Easter egg from yours truly at the very, very end. It just made me cry, man. I cried a couple of times watching this thing because like, I know how hard he's worked. Um, I know how much of his own life and story he poured into it. Also, you know, he's had some personal just tragedies and, and trials in the last several years. I was with him in Yellow Springs, Ohio with Dave Chappelle and Talib Kweli and a bunch of other folks while he was writing the series. Like I literally like sat outside in an Airbnb with him while I was working on my stuff and he was writing dialogue for, for the series. And so I just saw how much of it he poured into it. And it goes through this amazing journey. And then at the very end, at the very last scene, at the height of it all, um, there's an amazing Palestinian, like legendary, iconic Palestinian group called Dam, um, you know, with one of their iconic songs. And Mo asked me to spit some bars at the end of it. So like my voice is right at the end of it, which really means a lot to me. So special shout out to Mo Amr. Um, if you're part of the caravan, which are like basically our patrons, our subscribers, if you go to brotherali.com slash join or the section called join, you'll see that we have three different tiers there of a caravan, which is our our supporters, our group, you know, the people that rock with us, the people that listen, subscribe, support, are really a part of what we're doing. Uh, the top two tiers there, the second two tiers, they get a, a monthly Ask Me Anything episode. And so I just had a really good time uh, recording that episode. And, and I really talked through uh, my experience with TV and, and movies and things like that, my experience with Mo, and just what it means for me to be on this show. Also, man, we had some dope questions. Like people, <laughs> one person asked me like, okay, there's somebody who's creating this like alternate universe sci-fi version of hip hop. If you had to remove one of the elements, what would it be? Um, one of our native homies asked me like, what does it mean for you to create music? Um, you know, being coming from stolen land and having built your life and career on stolen land, really dope questions, you know? So, uh, hit up brotherali.com, sign the mailing list, go and check out the caravan on the top tier of the caravan. 
um, that's a very special experience. We call those like trailblazers. That's a very, very special uh, group of people that uh, we have a Slack channel where we've got folks that communicate with each other on a daily basis. And it really is like a small community that's being built in there of people who, because I'm part of, and my voice reaches people from so many different walks of life, the different groups of people that are represented in my listener community that I call the caravan, like we're travelers, you know, the part, the community that's in there comes from such different walks of life. Like these are people that know each other and, and love each other, are building real bonds together that wouldn't know each other otherwise. So head to brotherali.com and check that out. This episode is very special. I say that every week because I only talk to people that I love and admire and really respect. Um, some of them are people that I'm meeting for the first time. That's pretty rare. It's usually people that I know and do life with and that I'm inspired by. This week on the podcast, we have my dear friend, my brother, one of my inspirations, one of my favorite MCs. Like I'm genuinely a fan of him as a as an artist, Open Mike Eagle. Open Mike Eagle made one of my favorite hip hop albums of all time. Um, and we'll talk about that in the episode. I don't want to talk too much at the beginning of this one. I want to just jump into it. But what's important to know about this episode is that it's outside the norm. So Mike Eagle is the he is the founder of a podcast network called uh, Stony Island Audio, which if you're familiar with the South Side of Chicago, you know what that means. Um, Mike also has hosted incredible podcasts. Like he has one called What Had Happened Was, where he sits down and does a deep dive with these amazing hip hop producers, A&R people, people that have amazing long careers that have different chapters and different twists and turns. So he did an entire series with Prince Paul, who most of us know for producing De La Soul and really helping De La Soul to emerge into the scene. But Prince Paul has done so much. He did an entire episode with LP that we know from Company Flow and from Def Jux Records, Definitive Jux Records, and from Raucous and, and eventually from Run the Jewels. And he also just concluded a season with, uh, with my man Dante Ross, you know, iconic, like legendary hip hop producer in A&R. And Dante is able to talk about so many careers, everybody from MF Doom to Brand Nubian to, uh, you know, Whitey Ford sings the blues, my man Everlast, shout out to all of these people that we're talking about. These are all people that I know and love. So Open Mike Eagle is one of my inspirations for music, but really also he, I would say, I would credit him more than anybody else with the fact that I'm podcasting. So I actually hit him up because he does another podcast called Secret Skin, where he talks to his artist homies. And I just straight asked him like, man, I heard him saying, I don't know how many more episodes I'm going to do in this season. So I hit him up like, yo, if you're about to wrap up the season, can I please be on your podcast and will you please do mine? So Mike Eagle and I sat for like four hours, uh, me in Istanbul. I think he was at his house in LA. And um, first we recorded about two hours for Secret Skin, which is his podcast. Now that episode doesn't drop till Wednesday. This is Monday that, that uh, Traveler's Podcast comes out. So first we recorded his, uh, the episode for his podcast. And he started out interviewing me, but we very quickly just switched into like two friends chopping it up. And then we continued. We took a very quick like 15 minute bathroom and coffee break 
came back and jumped into this episode. So what you're going to hear right now is two dear friends. This is the second part of our conversation. They really should be heard together. And I'm just really grateful to have my man Mike Eagle on the show. Uh, we're brought to you, as always, by the Zakat Foundation, and we're also sponsored this week by BetterHelp online therapy platform. Enjoy this episode of Traveler's Podcast. I mean, so you you know that Brick Body Kills Till Dre Dreams, like one of my favorite rap records, like one of my favorite hip hop albums. At least I hope you know that. I mean, I it's it's an honor to hear every every time you say anything nice about it. It makes me it makes me grow a half an inch in height. My first wife's family is from Gary and Chicago, and they're from the South Side. And so I spent a lot of time on the South Side, like starting at seventeen, and you know, like my, it was like a headquarters of my religious community too. And I spent time in, in Robert Taylor Homes, and so I have I do have a good bit of context. To, and I know that you that you didn't live in Robert Taylor Homes, but that that was like such a part of your family, like that was like the headquarters of your family. Mm-hmm. I don't think that people realize that Robert Taylor specifically was like a village unto itself, closed community. It's a closed ecosystem. Yeah. And the, 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 the things that you're balancing there with like, we live in a space that never should have existed along with like all of the meaning that's there and like all of the lived human. I mean, it's not different from how people talk about parts of Palestine that have been stolen. Right. You know what I'm saying? And it's, and it's like growth and extension of the same, the same forces. Mm -hmm. But I just, I wonder what are the feelings that you have specifically about not, you know, prior to it being torn down and not replaced with anything, but just the feelings that you have of that place and what it felt like for you to be there and what it felt like for that to be the place where your family was located? My immediate, like, the place was, like, extremely dangerous. So I remember feeling like we were in danger a lot when we were there, like on the way in there, the pissy elevator up there, the shots that would ring out, you know, all around the building all the time. Like the fact that we could be out playing one second and then oh, time to go inside. They're shooting like. But then like. In some ways, the definition of where a family lives for me mm-hmm. is in an apartment in one of them buildings. Like what that looks like. Like the way that the radiators were on the wall. Like when I see something like that, it makes me think of family because I spent so much time in that place in that environment and and associating the particular ways that things looked with how a family is like certain kinds of carpet like like velvet paintings like that sort of thing that people from my grandmother and her sister's generations like the things that they had um so it's like the building felt unsafe inside that apartment felt like the definition of like a nurturing safe space for me. Like, like my great, I remember like 
before I could even talk, I have this memory of my great grandmother in that apartment, like walking me to the bathroom, asking me if I had to boo boo. Like I, I could, I, I, I could have, I was like two, maybe, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Two, three, something in there where like, I don't even know words, right? but I remember her doing that. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's the first place I watched Michael Jackson's Moonwalker. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? On the VHS tape was in this apartment. Like, so, you know, it it's, it's, there's, I think there's a lot of unexplored feelings there, honestly. Um, I think that even in my explorations of making the music, I did a lot of mythologizing um, lives that were never really lived there because I wanted to create a mythology. So I wanted to make a story that was bigger than the actual story. Um, and so in that, I didn't, I wasn't doing a ton of focusing on what my actual experiences and feelings were of being there. Like, so even talking through this right now, some of the first times I've actually sat and, sat and unpacked some of that. It, it really strikes me that like the relationship between the experience there, the, 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 the lives lived there, you know, that, that it was a place built to house 11,000 people and it housed 30,000. Yep. But I mean, that's over the course, that's at any one given time over the course of 50 years, yep. you know? So like the, the number of human lives that were touched there and the way that you talk about that, but then it seems like it was really important to connect that to the body, hmm. like not only in the name, but also in the art, you know, the, the artwork for the, for the project. And I just wonder what's, what's in there in terms of just meaning or sensation or about like the fact that all of these bodies are rounded up and put into these buildings. And the building is, is, is at the same time unsafe from the out, from the exterior, very safe on the interior. Um, it's so it's so it's a prison and a and a and a garden at the same time, hmm. and then that those that that bodies were round up and put in there, and then those buildings could just be destroyed, and then those bodies are just dispersed. Yeah, so I, I just or lost. It, there's there's just really something that like cannot be missed about the connection to the body uh, with the way that you presented it. Like the like the people themselves are made of bricks. Like there, there's, you know, there's just the link between the the buildings and the bodies in them. Yep. To me, that connection is born of apathy. I feel like, and there's been a lot of talk about the black body mm-hmm. in philosophy and media. Um, but when I think about like how those decisions were made in both erecting those buildings, maintaining those buildings, and demolishing those buildings. There's a there's a there's a a disgusting level of apathy. Like it's people doing up or down votes or writing whatever municipal codes or whatever the whatever meetings but it's like I don't think enough thought is put into the real lives of people or like 
the consequences for what happens when you have a closed economy for 50 years, like culture, uh, generations, like I don't like I think I think especially for a lot of people who have more economic privilege in this country, like you could you couldn't imagine if your if your grandmother's house was just not there, mm-hmm. just not there. Like you could imagine somebody selling it or buying it or but it I think it would be hard for a lot of people to imagine that like one day the city got together and had a meeting and decided your grandmother's house should be knocked down. Mm-hmm. I don't think that like people can really embody what that feels like. And, and by extension, I, I, I just think in society, like there's a lot of apathy about black bodies. I think there's a lot of apathy about the police killing of black people because there's a lot of room people have to be like, I don't connect to the feeling of that person's mother for having lost a child. Like there's all these other places I'm going to go to before that because I really don't have the empathy of this person or this person's family Mm -hmm. as a human being. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, that's the same apathy that was used to, like I said, erect, maintain and knock down those buildings. It's just like, it's just words on paper to people or ideas that people have about, you know, how different somebody's life is from their own, where they don't attach the same emotions and meaning to things or importance, you know? Um, and so the, the, for me, the entire, the entire thing is just like this grand hollering out for empathy. You know what I'm saying? Um, because I, I just in, in, in so many senses in, in our society, I feel like that's that's like the most important emotion is needed and it will save lives. Mm-hmm. Do you have a lot of quiet moments on your show? Some uh, some situations just require it. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? What you're saying in this record is not different from what Jay-Z has been saying his whole career hmm. about Marcy. And all, all of the, so many great artists, but especially in hip hop in particular, there's like, you know, the fact that you're envisioning the bodies as buildings and the buildings as bodies and like the, how connected they are. And, you know, this the same way that for someone like, I mean, a Jay-Z, like there's not a Jay-Z without Marcy and without Brooklyn. You know, I mean, so much about the so much about what Jay Z has said in his music for all of these years is just like you don't understand. Like you're seeing even him, like this the same conversation that me and you were having about like, can I please get some recognition for the fact that like this world has tried to destroy me, and mm. I have filtered all of this into. Uh, work that that like reveals the most vulnerable parts of my humanity such that people who have no connection directly to this experience of mine it makes them feel something in in their human heart it's like a very like uh, human affirming thing 
but can I also get recognition for the and like some sort of understanding that I'm not the only person that come that that's from that like this this place is full of human lives that are like my, that are like me. Yeah. To the to the point that like it doesn't matter how successful Jay Z has been, like when 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 he and Dream Hampton wrote Decoded. That was like at the arguably at the height of his career. Like he was the the most celebrated, successful. Everybody was finally starting to recognize him. And, you know, still like pouring this story like into this, you know, and and you know, it, it it's it's almost as if as if like the level of like outward fame isn't necessarily at what we're getting at. It's that that empathy thing, the love thing that you're talking about. And that people at the highest levels still, I mean, why is Prince like the biggest artist in America writing slave on his face? Mm. <laughs> and Michael Jackson, all I want to say is that they don't really care about us. Like, I mean, that's the, that's the, that's exactly what you're saying. Gosh. So what's working against that? What's working against it? If you got like, okay. I understand me on my soapbox and I'm asking for it. You got the biggest artists in the world throughout history asking for it. What's stopping it from happening? Yeah. Like, okay. I think for instance, capitalism works against it. And not to say that I think any other systems automatically better, but I do think that there's a, there's an individualism that comes along with capitalism. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a constant messaging from media that you don't have you don't have you don't have you don't have you need this you need this you need this you need this and like i think in some ways that works against us having empathy for each other mm -hmm. you know and and in that sense i wonder if if we had different systems i wonder how different things would feel i, I wonder if it would if we would if if we would experience a more communal existence yeah. If we were, you know, if 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 our society valued those things more. Yeah, I think there, there's no question about that. It's funny, man, because we had a conversation before your newest record came out. I always forget the order. So, but is it anime trauma divorce? Yeah. Okay. I know that I know that the three of those are in here, <laughs> but like I don't have a record cover. I don't have a record that I can hold and like hold in my hand. You know what I mean? It's like you know. I bought it on um, GarageBand, but I don't think I have those files. I listen to it on Spotify. Like, that's where I listen to it. And so it's just there. But it, so before you made that record, me and you had a conversation where I was like, yo, I want to hear the record where you open up to the point where you say literally what the things are. Mm -hmm. And we had a conversation where it was like, I, you've done so much. I don't know if you've done that. You, you're like, yeah, I haven't done that yet. But then when that record came out, it... I. I it changed my whole understanding of like what you do. And mm. it made me realize like you're extremely vulnerable and like you're extremely, and it's because of like, you know what I was saying in, in the podcast on secret skin, but it's because of the fact that like, you're not less vulnerable than somebody that, that um, is reading a list of factual details and like already processed emotions. You know what I'm saying? Like you're letting your window to vulnerability and openness is actually a lot closer to the core and to the moment that it's actually happening. Like you, you're profoundly open and profoundly vulnerable 
for as much as you say you're not, you know what I mean? Because I've heard well, you say to you people know, like, I don't, I don't like feeling my feelings. I don't like watching you feel your feelings. <laughs> I, I, I think, I think that that kind of gets to what I was about to say in retort. It's like, I think that psychologically, I'm very vulnerable. I don't. I think it's, it's. I won't say it's easy, but I have a lot of experience walking people through my thoughts. And I will, I will, I feel very comfortable going almost anywhere in my mind and expressing where I've gone. Uh, I don't have the same level of comfort with my emotional exploration. Um, I don't have a lot of the same verbal tools to describe what's going on in here. Um, and so if I look at that album, yeah, that's the most vulnerable I've ever been. Um, and a lot of it was literally an exploration of emotions. So that's, that made making that album wildly uncomfortable for me. Uh, there's still a ton of shit I didn't say though, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and there's different reasons why I didn't, um, you know, I was coming from a real marriage with a real person and, uh, you know, there's certainly some measure of protection I wanted to have for that person. Uh, and not to be so selfish that, you know, I get it all off my chest, but then got people asking her questions that she don't want to, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, there, there's, there's a certain measure of, of, of protection in it just for that. But then like, I don't know, there's this other thing where like, I, I'm, I'm really comfortable talking around things and, and yeah. And and there's some things that I just don't know how to say. So I'm I'm like uh, everything's race for me. You know that. Um, <laughs> everything's race. <laughs> <laughs> so like oh man, it there is there seems to be a European literalism that requires um, a very structured story. And it requires a lot of very literal. So like, my name is Brother Ali. So you know, because you come from the community where if you're in a religious community, everybody is brother something or sister so-and-so. Right. So it's like, oh, his name isn't brother. His name is Ali. <laughs> <laughs> but we know that his people are just like- mister, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> There's people that are just like, hey, is brother back there? You know what I mean? Right. Like there's people like, like brother must be my first name. Like I'm a Bearstein Bear or something. So- I'm saying like, there's like, you know, European culture is a written tradition. It's like Mm -hmm. words on paper. It's very literal. It's very, um, you know, it's very direct in that sense. Whereas African culture is not only an oral tradition, but I mean, so many of like stories are told that in the way that the drum is played, the way that the body is moved, the way that the clothes are worn, the way that the, you know, the, the, there's there, things are not said as directly, but it doesn't mean that there's less being communicated if a person is open and connected enough to receive it. Mm. There's actually more being That's communicated. True. Like the words actually, a lot of times are constrictive. Yeah. So like, okay, trying to find a radio... It's, it's a song about a bunch of dudes that love rap music and can't hear rap music and like, you know what I mean? 
but there's so much not being said in in there that like were you to try to write a dissertation about the communal nature of you know what I'm saying Robert Taylor Holmes in the 80s and the, you know what I'm saying like were you to do that you wouldn't be communicating there wouldn't be more actual emotional data in that mm-hmm. to me I think I think that's very fair I didn't understand until I heard the new record where you were more literal she fucked me up and he fucked her up and I'm gonna fuck you up. Like, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, maybe if he would say this stuff in a literal linear way, maybe other people would would feel what I'm feeling. Mm. That's what I think I was trying to get at. But, but then on the other hand, I'm like, man, you don't have to do that. <laughs> you, don't have to, <laughs> you just don't have to do that. Like, like, man, it, um, it, 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 it is is like Sun Ra saying less than Marvin Gaye. What's going mm. on? Not if you know. Like, you, you know, what I'm saying they might not teach Sun Ra. So, like, there there are people that I'm sure could teach certain people. Like, hip, they teach hip classes about hip hop lyrics in college. Right. What Sun Ra is saying, you can't put that on a page. Not even Cornell West or Michael Eric Dyson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's real. Ah. Uh. I th- yeah, you, you're you're making a very great point, and when I and that I like there's there's a there's there's a lot of emotional information in what I'm doing that I couldn't say with words if I was trying to, mm-hmm. you know I couldn't like and 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 I guess my thought is the the inability to feels like something that I need to work on sometimes like because I don't. I, I sometimes I think just in regular life, I wish that I had more of a capacity to put words to feelings. But I do think in music, my ability to communicate emotions through delivery, uh, vocal inflection, like, um, you know, I, I do think that that has that has emerged over the course of my career. I just haven't always considered it in 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 the context of the type of conversation we were having. Yeah. Like there's times in the delivery where it almost sounds like someone was sleeping in the room and you, while you were spitting it and you didn't want to disturb them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You're a big person. Yeah. Like your body Bigger is than, big. Yeah. Your voice is big. You can fill the van or a room or whatever, like with your voice. But there are times where when you're spitting, it's like you're holding something back. So I'm trying to put like put words to what that means. You know, I think so much about like the album that was made about Robert Taylor Holmes. This idea of like a lot of what I'm saying here are secrets for a reason. Not all these, not all of this vulnerability should be shown. Hmm. It's not going to be welcome. This isn't always welcome. So I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say it in the way that I want to say it, and in the way that that feels right for me to to do. Even some of those vocal takes are like really quiet, you know what I'm saying? To where like the way that you do them now on stage is not the same. It's true. Like now you've like fully, like you fully like arrived. It's almost, it, it, it feels like how many years did you have to do this song on stage and people be like, yes, Mike, yes. To be like, yeah, and another thing. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. You know, each each song, there's a journey. And I and then and I imagine for you, it's not like this. 
but for me, okay. So in our other conversation, we were talking about how I got started freestyling. Mm-hmm. Um, so my first six, seven years of rapping, it was strictly in the street or in a crowded room or maybe on stage with a mic, but it was all thought, wordplay, um, timing, but no technique, no, no, no real craft technique in terms of how my vocals are hitting this microphone. Mm. Um, so when I started recording, I really felt like I was at a loss for a long time because rapping the way I knew how to rap in the street didn't translate well to like rapping on the diaphragm of this condenser microphone. And like, and I'll be rapping with other people who are really good at that and just be feeling fucking defeated all the time. Mm. Um, so while I am already in the midst of having a career, like I've put an album out, like I'm still having this journey with learning how to get the most out of my voice in front of this condenser microphone and where I arrived at and found most comfort and was able to grow the most from was in being very quiet. Mm. Um, and, and just trying to like find what I could get the most, uh, like the most intonation I could put into being completely relaxed. Um, and so I feel like I do like my best painting with that. Um, but then you're right. A song comes out, you start performing it. And then I do, I find all these different pockets and these different like ways to, cause this is the other thing that this, this relaxed intonation is delicate intonation into the condenser microphone does not translate live at all. It doesn't mm-hmm. like you'd have to be playing an acoustic guitar mm-hmm. or a cello or something for like that to cut through. Like we're playing on these big bassy systems. You can't even hear me if I'm doing that. Mm-hmm. So now I got to find some way to take that and make it translate. So now I'm doing it at some higher volume. And then I, you know, and if they're singing, I have to find a note or the register that I'm comfortable doing it at. And all of that is like a whole nother journey. And like, yeah, so like you say, like two years in, a year in of, of, of doing a song is when I finally figure out how to perform it the best. My relationship to the song develops this whole other time, um, you know, and, 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 and I fully abandon the idea that my live performance needs to sound like the record. You do a lot of... You do a lot of singing, and then you also do a lot of what you call rapping in key. Mm-hmm. What's your relationship with that specifically? Because, like as you describe, feeling some sort of like constriction and struggle, and like search to figure out how to how to get this voice onto a record, it seems like a lot of people would not dive into singing mm. as <laughs> you know what I mean as part of that. And I mean, you dive directly into it. Yep, it's true. And I I sang a, I sang a lot before I really should have been. Um but what that was a product of for me is that so like 
I love hip hop and always have. Actually, I haven't always loved hip hop because there was a time in my life when I listened to strictly alternative rock music, strictly, like strictly. Like rap was, I was just done with rap. And this is when I was like 12, 13, 14. Like I didn't want to hear it. Like I wanted to hear what was playing on uh, 120 Minutes on MTV or they had this show called Alternative Nation. I wanted to hear grunge records. I wanted to hear college rock. I wanted to hear the Pixies and the Breeders and they might be giants. And um, I have a deep relationship to um, that sort of rock music, which has informed how I write hooks. And it informs the beats that attract me. Mm-hmm. And the beats that attract me tend to be rife with melody. Mm-hmm. And, and, I fancy myself a hook writer, even if I haven't always had the the pipes or the chops to execute, like those melody parts come to me. And I feel like in the development of a song, like that's a really important tool. So um, I've always written hooks and, and, and a lot of those have involved singing. Like I, I was, I got very quickly when I started writing raps, I got bored very quickly with like the rap hook where the hook just sounds like four more bars of verse. Right. You know what I'm saying? And you're just repeating it like that. That kind of bored me because uh, I didn't feel like I was getting the most out of the music when I was writing that way. Um, so I've always felt compelled to sing my dad sings. Um, mm. my dad also from a very early age had me listening to Gil Scott Heron. Yo, that's crazy. I swear to God, I was about to just say his name. Yeah. Because your singing reminds yeah. me a lot of Gil Scott Heron and Yasin Bey sings a lot in the same way to me. Yeah, and, and to me, you know, uh Yasin, he he's he is a much more trained vocal. Like even he he sounds more trained than Gil Scott to me. Um but I was definitely inspired, but like, like Gil Scott singing, you like, there are people who would say that he can't sing. Yes. Like I could see people say that. Right. Um, but it's, it's always appealed to me and it always felt like the way a rapper would sing. Like he always felt like a rapper to me. Yes. Um, so I was very much inspired by, by his approach too. That's amazing. Cause yeah, it sounds like your uncle that sings. Yep. I was in like a very specific Muslim community as a teenager. And yeah, we had like a guy that would be at all of the conventions. And his name is Wilmore Siddiqui. <laughs> and like he made uh, like songs for Muslim kids. And I mean, he, I'm a little Muslim child. Covered all over <laughs> is my style. Like he, like those were the kind of, and then all the kids would do these like sing along with the kids. But it's crazy because, like, you know, I, I entered that community when I was 15. And, you know, a lot of my friends, like, grew up there. And that music, like, really means a lot to us because it feels like a family member singing. Like, it, it feels, like, really, really genuine. Right. And, yeah, I was going to say exactly that. That you, your, your tone or, or, you know, texture doesn't sound like Gil Scott Heron. But the approach feels really yeah. similar. So, like, so when you're saying, like, I jumped in earlier than I thought or then, then maybe you feel like you should have – that's extremely vulnerable. Like that's profoundly mm-hmm. vulnerable. You know what I mean? Right, like this is. is what I sound like when I sing to myself. Most people mm-hmm. sing like no one's listening or dance like no one's watching. Like you're doing that knowing that everybody will listen. That makes me consider, that makes me like hate some of my earlier shit less when you say it that way. Like it kind of gives me a different perspective on it. Um, 
because because well, the way I hear it now, I hear it sometimes as a I hear it as a lack of experience. I hear it as a lack of control. Um, but there's a certain truth to it just being literally where I was. From the very beginning of Traveler's Podcast, the first people that stepped up and said, yo, we want to really be part of this podcast. We want to support what this thing is about. We want to support this intention has been Zakat Foundation, Z-A-K-A-T Foundation. It's a global humanitarian organization that just does incredible work all over the world. And specifically, my friend Amna Mirza, who will be on the podcast very soon, is just really... Uh, somebody that's very creative in that space and really is taking a hard and very, like like I said, creative, innovative look at the way that this stuff is done. And the team over there at, at Zakat Foundation are that way. They're people that think outside the box. They're, they're people that are always really looking to the Islamic tradition to inform how we show up for other human beings. Because, you know, there's an industry, there's it's the industrial complex of uh, NGOs and humanitarian organizations, charity work that's done around the world. And some of the things are really beautiful. Some of the ways that they do things, uh, Zakat Foundation felt like, well, can we improve upon that? And so much like me, they look to our tradition to say, what can we learn from our tradition about how these things are done? During the time of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, zakat was very easy that people would just give the zakat to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And every single night before he went to bed, he made sure every single thing was out of his house. Uh, he distributed it all that day. But because you have this central figure that everybody's coming to see him and he knows most of the people live with him uh, in his city and live around him and live near him. So it's easy to distribute. And you know, they say that even every as so much as a single date, you know, that people would, would give dates because Medina was a city that was rich in dates and dates are a superfood and people that, you know, it was very rare that they ate meat. It was very rare that they ate more than once a day. Like even his, even he, peace be upon him as the head of this, uh, you know, it's a, a spiritual movement, a social, a, 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 a justice movement. It also was a political reality by the end of his life. And even he as the lead, as, as the head of that reality, uh, didn't eat more than once a day. He asked his companions, what will it be like? What are you guys going to be like when you start eating two meals a day? And they said, Rasulullah, is it true that we'll eat two meals a day? And so it was, you know, he distributed it all. He gave it all, everything. He wouldn't go to sleep with a single coin, with a single date inside of his house. But then it started to grow. The community started to grow as a political reality. It started to grow. And so you have the Khalifas that took over, that, that became the leaders of this community after him. And uh, Omar, the person that all the people named Omar in the world are named after this man. Sayyidina Omar, radiallahu an, Allah be well pleased with him. He was noticing that people were giving their charity to other people that were around them. 
And so people that lived in more well-to-do areas were like trying to find people around them to give charity to. And so he instituted a new policy where charity could actually be distributed from place to place to the people that were most in need. You know, so we look to our tradition to say, like, just because something's been done a certain way doesn't mean that that's the most equitable way to do it, the most humane way to do it. So shout out to Zakat Foundation. Follow them on social media, Zakat US, um, and you can see all the dope things that they do. Or you could go to their website, zakatfoundation.org. And I would say look into the things that they're doing around the world. It's a Muslim organization, but they don't only help Muslims. They don't use the, their giving to proselytize. Um, it's just a really dope organization. I know the people there and I'm really grateful to be in partnership with them. So I'm suggesting that one of the ways to get out of that funk that a lot of us are in, to get out of this feeling of despair that some of us find ourselves in, is to give to other people. And Zakat Foundation is, a, is an organization that you can feel good about the fact that it will actually reach the people in a dignified way. So much love to Zakat Foundation. While we're taking a break from this episode, I want to remind you all that if you head to brotherali.com, you can see all the stuff that we have going on. It's much better than following us on social media, just because of the fact that we got to rely on algorithms and like whatever. My man, Mike Eagle always says, if you do so-and-so, it'll make the robots like us. And I don't want the robots to have to like me, you know what I'm saying? And I don't want the robots to have something to do with our relationship. So go to brotherali.com. One of the things that you can see there, if you go to brotherali.com slash events, is our upcoming tour schedule. Uh, we've got shows coming up on the East Coast, on the East part of the country. We Back in the spring, we did the Traveler's Tour West, which was really dope. We had a really amazing time. This time, we've got two shows in Minneapolis. Those both sold out immediately. And then we start working our way East and go all the way through Michigan and Ohio, and then we go all the way down the East Coast, ending in Atlanta. So this is the next part, the next leg of the Traveler's Tour. It's myself, my amazing DJ, Last Word, and one of the great, great, great hip-hop artists from the Twin Cities whose name is Mally, M-A-L-L-Y. If you haven't heard Mally, go and check him out. It's an amazing show from three people that are really close friends and brothers, um, it's just, it's just a really dope experience. I don't want you to hear about it afterwards. I know that there's a lot of shows going on. We did our best to try to keep the ticket prices as low as we possibly could. Uh, for my Philly people, I want to make a note that we were supposed to be at Milk Boy in Philly. And um, they're having like structural issues. So they need to renovate Milk Boy in Philly. So they're trying to move 70 shows, 70 shows at Milk Boy while they do these renovations to make sure that the venue is safe. Thank you for keeping the, the, the venue safe. So our show has been moved to, okay, here it is. Warehouse on Watts is the new spot that we're doing our Philly show. But go to brotherali.com, check all that stuff out. We also are doing VIP, which is a really special thing. You get to come in early. We do an intimate uh, musical performance for you. We do a small group Q&A. Those are limited. A lot of times they sell out. And then also you get some free merch and things like that, exclusive stuff. You get an exclusive shirt when you do that, and you also get an exclusive VIP laminate that I signed for you. So head to brotherali.com slash events, and do not miss the Traveler's Tour East. I got a quick aside for you, because you keep making me laugh, and it's something reminds me of something that I was going to ask you. Um, 
publicly and privately, people can be different. Yeah. And, and I'm like, damn, is there any difference between public and private, Ali? I really don't think there is. But then I thought of one. I'm not sure if people know how funny you are. I, I think people see you as a very serious guy. Yeah. And you are a very serious guy, but you're also <laughs> extremely fucking funny. And I wonder, like, is, I'm, I'm sure part of this experience of podcasting has, has, has been showing that to people. And, and I wonder what that experience has been like for you. It's weird, man. I, that's, like, really perceptive of you. But um, first of all, thank you for saying that. I can't make everybody laugh. Right. It's like there's got to be a real shared, there's got to be a bunch of shared stuff. Like mm -hmm. a real comedian. And I'm saying like, you know, you you have a lot of close proximity to to comedians. And so you know that like, like Hannibal can crack you guys up in high school all day. He's got to learn to make anybody laugh. True. You know what I'm saying? And the ones that actually become great at doing that, like they really succeed at that. Like I can make people that like, if I feel completely comfortable with them and I feel like we have so many of the same references and, and that's actually a mark for me. Like I've, I've, I used to have this thing where like everybody is either somebody I don't know or they're all family. I love everybody so intensely. Mm. And I started thinking about like, man, who are the people that I'm funny with? You know what I'm saying? That I, that I just feel that way. Like I feel like, man, I just, I have an open pass to, to say something funny and this person's going to get it. And it makes it, it, there's like such a beautiful connection in like making somebody laugh. Like, True. Amir Suleiman was talking about that on the podcast. And he's somebody that like, man, I can all I can always make him laugh and it makes me feel so good. Cause if people think I'm serious, it's like, what do people think of Amir Suleiman? You know what I mean? And he's hilarious in, in real life. Like he's just even when he's not trying to be. Um, but he was just saying, like, what is this thing about laughing? It's like I say some words. And it causes an involuntary thing that changes, that starts in your stomach. It changes your face. You, you, you no longer have control over your breathing and your crying and you're like. And it releases a lot of neurotransmitters too. Mm. Like it's, it's really something. It's really something. It's like one of them things that, that, that is, I think, a real special thing about humans is this ability to laugh. Yeah. What it does for I, I feel like I was funny on, on Shadows in the Sun, and I've never been funny since. <laughs> on records. Even on a podcast. Like, there's, you know, there's moments. So, like, yeah, so, like, you know, me and KSA Lehman. Do you read KSA Lehman? Have you ever read Heavy? Mm -mm. How to Slowly? Oh, man. When I, on that, on that joint, I, he fucked him up. I fucked you up. I'm going to fuck you up. Like, man, that, that really reminded me of the joint called Heavy. KSA Lehman. Um wrote this book called Heavy, I'll send, I'll, I'll send it to you, but, okay. you know, like, yeah, I feel like when I made my first record, it was just me and Ant in a room, and mm. I can really make Ant laugh, and it makes me really happy, because <laughs> he's funny, and, um, you know, and so it's just a, so much of that record is me doing things that, like, if he laughs, then that's the thing that we're going to do. Like that was the barometer of like, is what I'm doing right or not? Wow. And I feel like I've never gotten to that since then. And I'm not sure what to, why or what to do about it. But I think- Is that it, something you feel like is, is, is missing hell from- Hell yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Completely. Yes. I'm, I'm always like that record. I'm like, man, there's something so much more pure about that record. Because also I didn't think anybody would hear it. Like when we made it, there wasn't, mm. I didn't, like I said, I didn't know there was this audience that was just waiting for there to be 
uh, fat albino Muslim. Um, <laughs> See, that's funny. Like, wow. like, come on. <laughs> like, I just didn't know that. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. It's deep, man. So, so, but I'm saying like, you have a lot of humor all through your stuff. Like I'm saying, man, a freaking spork in the road, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I laugh out loud about that. And that's in the middle of a song that is not funny. It's true. You know what I mean? Like it, 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 that's in a, then it's, that's in a really, uh, you know, it's a heavy song. Yeah, yeah. man. And it's a heavy it's record. And, but I'm saying like, that's hilarious. And it's hilarious because it's such a hood thing. Like something about a spork yeah. is like that, that's got just like free lunch written all over it. That's Harold's got like, chicken or something like that. Yeah, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, like that's what the like if you go to the hood spot, it's like we're not gonna have spoons and forks. Like we're not gonna have like <laughs> there will be one plastic utensil, and and it's gonna be it's gonna have to be both. And like yeah, we can't afford differentiation. You're eating here. your banana pudding with it, and you're gonna eat your collard greens <laughs> with it, and you're gonna shut up. Yeah. 100%. But I, and, and you know your relationship with comedy, and also I think that you've stepped out uh, in ways that a lot of because I mean hip hop's always been so full of comedy. Like man, we just lost Biz Marquis, who's like one of the most mm. like uh, uh, comedic geniuses, you know, um, in the culture. But you know the fact that you've actually like stepped out and and you know created a, a comedy show for Comedy Central. And then created a whole album around that joint. Um, it feels like you're really like honoring and investing in the importance of laughter and in in comedy in the in the culture. And I just wonder if you could say something about what that means to you and why it's so important to you. Um. So. I think it's just it's 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 just a natural part of my process. I think part of my media brain was built around like sitting at home as a kid and watching comedy on TV, just trying to like. I think I I learned a lot about the world through watching TV, like like seeing what people laughed at and trying to like reverse engineer why because and, and mostly because i just didn't know shit like i was a little ass kid i didn't know nothing so like mm -hmm. like so that was like a like every time somebody laughed on tv it was like a math problem for me like this person said something to this other person in this room full of people laughed at her this person said a joke on stage i don't know what half these damn words mean but a room full of people laugh. So it's like there's something for me to work out about these the relationships of these things to each other, especially because I can't go outside because they're shooting. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like I'm literally like learning about the world. Um, and so I think that there's just just a part of how my machine works is 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 based on finding those humorous connections between things. Like those, that's what pops out at me about life in some senses. That's what that's like. In, in the multitude of options of words that, that you could say in conversation or words you could say on a song, like everybody has some ordering principle of what makes one word more valuable than the other than the next word. And for me, a lot of that like humor is a top metric of what makes me want to say some shit. Uh. Um, and, and so I think this is natural in me. Um, I've also noted how when I write things that are really humor forward, there's a lot of connection that happens with people, mm. uh, especially live. Like there's a lot 
of 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 goodwill that I get from an audience if like when I write that way and when I'm in a room full of people who are actually listening um like that's usually a win for me um I gotta say lately like if I'm thinking about this album I'm gonna put out in October I don't think I'm not sure if there's anything funny on it um I I think that there's a like I have a song on it where like it's called I retired and I changed my mind. And it's literally about this day where let's see like, off, like, like, like that's a funny premise. Right. Cause you know we all have like, man, yes. come on, man. We've all retired a hundred times. A hundred percent. But like then in the song, I say a bunch of really, really real shit about my career. Like that's the song, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's a funny premise, but I didn't necessarily make jokes with it. I just really wrote what I was thinking that day which was like half full of regret and pain, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And like, and, and, and missed opportunities and, and shit I wish I could have did. And, you know, like, um, but yeah, this, this latest, the, I think where I'm at now is like, it's a little less comedy forward. Mm. Um, but I think, I think that's got something to do with just me wanting to be regarded a little bit different. Like, I feel like I did that. You know, mm. and I feel like and and honestly, like that experience you brought up with Comedy Central, like that was I was very fortunate to have that opportunity, but there was a lot of pain I had with yes. how that shit went. Yeah. There was a lot of pain. And like I mean, that's a legit think, capital T trauma for you. It was it was fucking rough. Uh and and um I didn't know any better than to put my whole heart in it because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. Like now I know better. Um, cause that's not, that's, it's, it's not that type of arrangement. Right. And, and this is, you know, in my therapy journey, something I've had to really come to terms with mm-hmm. is that like, I really try to, when I, when I'm in business relationships with people, I really don't look at it the way that I should. I really try to put family ties on it that don't belong there. Yeah. Like I've, I've done a lot of that. And in TV is not the place. Cause them, like, even like the people in the crew, like the camera, the people who tape the the gaffers, like the lighting, like these people, like their whole job is to get a, get a gig, work very intensely with people for six to eight weeks. And then maybe you never see them again after that. Like that's their whole job. And like that shit fucked my world up. Like, this is our show that me and Baron built and, and it was our baby and everybody who we hired on it was like our family and they were executing our vision. And I love these people, but for them, it was just work. Right. You know? And so like that, a, a, a lot of the, the, the pain around it for me was informed by me looking at it the wrong way or, or, or in a way that wasn't conducive to the environment that the thing was in. So I think in some ways, leaving the comedy behind is a little bit of like healing from that whole situation. Mm. And, and when I feel a little bit better about that, then I can, I feel like I can be funny. Like I can put funny back in my music again. Like I, I had to, I really put a lot of my best funny music brain into that album. And even just to see how it hasn't even performed well, like with all the guests, you got method, man, Lizzo, doom, like, all, you know, like you got, and, and it's like, 
on paper, right. this was supposed to be like my finest hour. And it, every day, it's not. Yeah, <laughs> you know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, it's still right there. And you executed it amazingly. Thank you. I mean, the woke off we, is just like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like it's, it's, and also like technique wise, like you're hanging with Doom, you're hanging with Fonte, Fonte. you're hang, I'm saying, and like, those are, and I don't, I don't say those names together uh, by coincidence. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, those are not, like, I, Fonte is the only guy that I really think beat me on. No, fair, I think Fonte and Pharaoh are the two guys that beat me. But Fonte, I feel like. <laughs> like objectively, anybody that hears it, like, man, you win this one, Fonte Coleman. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Tay's Tay's a beast, you know. And we we got we had Fonte on there twice, yeah. like doing doing his thing, doing the Percy Miracles thing, like. So so it's a, not only a high moment in terms of like pulling off something very unique, but also like it's it's some of your best rap rapping, like you're, and you stepped outside of what you normally would have done. Like it sounds to me when I hear. For people that don't know, there's the, the the Comedy Central show, and then there's an album dedicated to that show, and some of the and the songs are also skits on the show, and like right. it's integrated in a way that like it's amazing. And you would think that like if you hand something like that to a media conglomerate, that's like, all right, here's a brilliant TV show, and here's a a brilliant album. Like there's an actual product that you can also take this and send it into the world of music and bring all those things together. Like you think that you're handed like tossing them a alley oop, you mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? And they're just like, nah, never mind. Yo, like, and and I gotta say this, like, there, there's two Comedy Central execs that were working on the show, and they worked they worked really hard. Mm. Um, but I think, and and I can say this in hindsight, the whole situation was a bad math problem from jump. Mm. We just didn't really understand that until. Well, there were a couple times we could have learned it, but we didn't really get it until like it started airing and we like, and there's this whole thing about how their budgets work and all this, but like it was only ever going to be on Friday late at night at a time when comedies, there was no, like, I'm sure if we did it now, they'd air episodes on Paramount Plus after they aired, you know on tv they didn't have that then so their whole thing was just about like the amount of eyes who could watch the product when it was airing um but for the audience we were trying to reach they were, they were not at home on friday not at, at not 10 o'clock not at and, all and they were never gonna be and we were ne like and we were an expensive show because we were doing music and all of that too it wasn't just stand up like so it was just it was all bad math to begin with um but it's like damn i i when i think back like oh i wish that at some point I could have dialed my heart back a little bit. Do you have a you know, do you have a mentor in like working with TV or like where were you supposed to have learned that from? Um I don't because I don't know. I, I don't really know anybody in that world that I could feel like I could sit down and like ask how to navigate um, and what to expect. And there's people I could have asked, but I don't think I don't I think it was just such a unique time. Like if if everything had happened now it would go different. Because there's these streaming services. If everything happened maybe two years before that, it could have been different. Because a bunch more people were watching TV, and 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 you know our clips on YouTube might have had less to compete with. And I think we all thought we were doing our best. I I, I think there's maybe some higher up execs that were a little, they were a little facetious with us about 
whether they really believed in us. Mm. I think that's the truth, but I don't, I don't even know how we could have known that before we learned it. Um, yeah, man, it was, it's, it's a lot of moving parts. Um, and I think we all did our best. It, it, it just, it just did. It didn't work. It didn't work. And what was, what we all thought would be our finest hour. BetterHelp is a sponsor of this episode of Traveler's Podcast, and we get a commission when you use our link to sign up. If you listen to the podcast regularly, you know that I'm an advocate of therapy. I'm also a person that's in therapy. I believe, and from studying pre-modern people, that when we lived in villages, when we lived with tribes, when we lived with our extended families, um, there might not have been this need because of the fact that our lives were so interwoven with one another. We didn't have this isolation that we live with now. We didn't have nuclear families now where we kept the elders away and we put them away in homes when we left our parents as soon as we got a chance to. Uh, when we you know, kind of isolated and holed up inside of our own little houses and communicated on devices and things like that. When we really shared life with each other and then also when we had the resource of just being connected to people that were older than us and that lived different lives than us and had experiences we didn't have and had perspective on the world and on life and on relationships and and the human struggle and condition that also knew us in ways that we didn't know ourselves. Maybe in those times we didn't need things like therapy. Maybe therapy was part of life. I don't know. But I know that in these times, I've really benefited tremendously from therapy and the way that I have accessed therapy, especially me living in another country. I live in Turkey. Um, it's difficult for me to find English-speaking therapists who understand the context of American life because, you know, even though I have an address in America, that's not where I live. And a lot of people's, a lot of therapists, their licenses require that the person that they, the people that they serve, their clients are in maybe the same state as them. So it was really challenging. I found myself with a lot of barriers to access therapy. And I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts and they were talking about better help. And I was like, yo, let me just check this out. And I asked my wife about it, who's a therapist. She talked to her friends about it in her community. And she said, you know, give it a shot. I know, I knew that one of the things that they offered is that you can change therapists whenever you want to. No hard feelings, no questions asked, no funniness. It's not rude. You just, there's a button right there that just says, I would like to switch my therapist. Because not everybody's a good fit. You want to really feel like, I can trust this person with all the things that I'm about to reveal to them. So you go to betterhelp.com, betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P.com, slash travelers. If you use our link and our partnership with them, uh, it lets them know that you know we're the ones that shared this resource with you. And they also kick something back toward the show. It, they, they actually sponsor and, and support what we do here on the Travelers Podcast. You go there and you sign, you, you start to, to go through a questionnaire 
and they ask you questions about yourself and like what's bringing you to therapy. Do you want to talk about addiction? Do you want to talk about relationships? Do you want to talk about, um, you know, uh, body issues? Do you want to talk about, are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling anxiety? Are you feeling like, what is it that's bringing you to therapy? And then also, do you have your own kind of kind of uh, preferences? Would you rather talk to a man or would you rather talk to a woman? Would you rather talk to somebody, you know, a, a therapist of color? Would you rather talk to somebody who specializes in trauma? Would you rather talk to somebody that specializes in LGBTQIA plus concerns? All that, would you rather talk to somebody religious? Would you rather tell, you can tell them specifically what you want. And then they pair you with somebody and you can start communicating with your therapist right away. You can start texting them. You can send them voice notes. I'm, I love voice notes because I clearly love the sound of my own voice. But it's something that you can can start with right away. You make your own appointments. You set your own appointments. You let them know, like, do you want to talk to the person with the camera on so that we can see each other? Do you want to just talk on the phone? Do you want us to start by texting? And then you get in the session and you just feel them out. You just check them out. You share with them what you feel comfortable sharing and see what they what they have to offer, what do they bring to the table? And then once you feel like this is a person that I can trust with my stuff, then you start sharing and you start opening up. I'll tell you, I jumped on my first call with my therapist on BetterHelp. And I just told her that I'm here to talk about so-and-so. She started asking me questions and then just showing me what I had said and on my first session, it gave me an entirely different perspective. I saw myself and these patterns that I've that I found myself in in a totally new light. And from that point, like man, I was just like, okay, you're dope. All right, you're you're clinic, you're you're the real thing. And these are licensed, trained, you know, medical health professionals. Like these are the real the real deal. So I just started going in. And she started asking me questions and she started telling me, you know, these are some things I want you to focus on. This is where we're going to go with this. If you have a, a very clear and present need in the moment, we can devote sessions to that. But I'm trying to get back to this thing with you and your childhood. And I'm going to ask you to sit with moments in your childhood and we'll do it at a rate and in a way that you're comfortable with, you know, and it's just been dope. It's been really, really good. So I'm sharing this because of the fact that I needed it. I learned about it on a podcast. I had barriers to connecting with a therapist and BetterHelp has worked for me. So check it out. Go to betterhelp.com slash travelers and allow yourself to have access to something that we all deserve. I have this image in my head of like, and I don't know how much of it is myth, but I have this image in my head of you and Hannibal in high school. And well, we went to college together. College. Okay. I knew I didn't completely make it up, <laughs> but I'm saying like, it, I feel like um, just, just from the outside looking at, and I know you and I know him, I know you much better than I know him, but he's always been really good to underground rappers. Yep. Like he will come to town and be like, Hey man, I got a. I sold out two shows tonight at so and so. If you're not doing anything, if you want to come down and spit some of that hot shit, that'd be great. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so I, I went to a joint, and I'm just happy like it's two sold out shows. You know, and 
you know, he he had me come on and play at both shows. And then he handed me like a very large fistful of cash that I was not expecting. And at first I was he like- very good for that. Yeah. And I was just like, I felt weird because I was just like, man, I, I, I'm just happy to be part of this. You know what I mean? And he was just like, you don't need money. <laughs> He's like, you don't need money. It's funny because I was actually, um, I was about to, he was asking like, so so what, what are you about to do this summer? And I was about to go to the Bay Area to study Arabic at the first ever accredited Islamic university of, like in America. And I got about four sentences in and he goes, this is one of the most boring things I've ever heard. I think we need to either change the subject or I'm just going to walk around and talk to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, dang. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, I mean, man. I mean, it's rude, but it's beautiful. Man, like, I'm, I don't, you know, like, like his the, like direct dryness is really incredible. Yeah. When, and I live in LA, like nobody speaks that freely. Right. You know, so that's that's refreshing. One time, uh, one time uh he invited me and my wife to come to the Chris Rock show. He was opening for rock, like Chris Rock was getting ready to do tambourine. And so he invited us to the show and Afterwards, he went to this spot. He went to go like hang out, and he was like, "Hey, I'm at so and so. Come kick it." I'm like, "I'm with my wife. The kids are at home. I gotta head in." And so I wrote him out like everything that I thought about his set. Mm. Like I sent him a long text, and I was like, "This was great. This was great. This was great. This was great." And like he just texted it back, but I could just hear it in his voice. He goes, "Thank you for that very detailed compliment." <laughs> <laughs> And I just and, I, and, oh, and like you know what shit. he looks like. You know he had a drink in his hand while he texted it. And like you know what his face looked like. You know what his posture was. Thank you for that very detailed compliment. That is so funny. But man, there there there's there's really a lot about the about the way that you present and the way that Hannibal presents that just remind me so much of each other. So like, am I mythologizing like what a and his his like deep understanding of what it means to be an underground artist, independent artist. Um, like what 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 is that connection between y'all? And and is it as deep as what it is in my in my mind? Yeah, with me and him it's it's a real human connection. And I think that informs probably informs everything that you're sensing. You know, like his career, like I don't I could I could I can't as much as I know about it, I can't wrap my head around it still. And it's always adding new layers and new wrinkles. He just started doing music like at a high level, you know, after yeah. really nurturing that for for a couple of years, like and working hard on it. Like he's doing that, you know, and, yes. and he's always adding new wrinkles and elements to his thing and his his, his like the, the business of him is this ever growing thing. And from just being a brother I was cool with on in college and stayed cool with and in to watch him literally become a celebrity, you know, um, it's it's been crazy, but we've always been really intentional about like understanding what was going on in each other's lives on a human level. Mm. Like we don't talk a lot of business. Um, like we check in a lot, you know, life changes and, and 
I think a, a big function of our relationship is just kind of making sure that each other understands they have somebody to talk to about real shit. And I, and the, the thing about his career, I mean, not being able to wrap my head around it, like I'm not certain if he understands how mine works completely. Uh, Cause we don't talk about that a lot, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure he understands that I'm working at a much smaller scale. <laughs> I'm sure he <laughs> right. gets that. He knows there's a differential in us, yes. you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just the, the whole thing is just staying, staying connected, staying like grounded, you know? And I think everything else kind of just comes out of that. Yeah. I, I feel like, man, we, I, I need to ask about podcasting because like I said, I, entered into the podcast space largely because I saw what you did with it. And so much of like when we were on tour, it was me just asking you a million questions about podcasting. And I still remember those talks and I still have actually like notes that I wrote in my old computer that I would like go back after the conversations and be like, okay, you know, write, wrote down the things, the advice that you gave. Um, it, It seems to me as though you doing podcasting is you being genuinely interested in the people that you're talking to for yourself and almost just creating an excuse to, to ask questions about, about people and things and times and projects and careers that you're interested in. It, it, it feels like you're genuinely seeking that stuff for yourself. And I wonder if that's, if that resonates, like if that's the way that you feel about it. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. And I think that, in the in the occasions where I've talked to people and that's not true, I don't I don't think the quality of the conversation is high in terms of my ability to to make it happen. Um, I I think I kind of have to be led by my own genuine curiosity. Um, like it's it's been a it's it's been a like and and it's it's a challenge too, right? Because like if I have somebody doing a what had happened was season, like. I don't love every album equally. You don't love every album equally from anybody, any artist you love. And so like, there's a little bit of a challenge. Like, how do you, how do I, how do I produce a high quality conversation about album five? Um, when I didn't really like album five. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, one, one thing that I've found, in those instances is I have to have a way to say that I didn't like it, it or, or say that I didn't like it as much as album three or, or say that I didn't spend that much time with it. And then, you know, see where, where the conversation goes around that. See if that, like what that, what that creator's feelings about album five were, uh, what was going on in their lives then do they listen to it? Do you know? Um, but yeah, it has, to, it, it kind of has to be led by my truth and my curiosity or else I don't know how to navigate it in a way that I feel like it's going to, deliver the goods but i think you're dead on about about the 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 i won't say the motivation but that's the engine the mm-hmm. engine of it is my genuine curiosity and especially what had happened was because that is really dealing with you know when you talk about like how difficult longevity really is and like what a feat it is to have a long cuz i mean those are really about asking somebody about to to walk us through what does it mean to have a long career where you don't just stumble on something dope one time but like what is it what is it meant for these like long dynamic careers and it's and it's interesting to me that like f- all three of those guys there's a feeling in all of them they all express it in very different ways 
You know what I'm saying? Because they're such different. Per- like you couldn't have like on a human level, you couldn't pick three different people You're than so Prince right. Paul, LP, <laughs> Dante Ross, and I mean, Dante Ross. You know what I'm saying? Like they're so different. But with all three of them, they express in a different way. Like, hey, thank you for asking me. Like nobody ever really thought. These are people that have been so important and so amazing, and they like they have achieved the feat of finding greatness in what they do many times and in different scenarios and in different uh, periods, but it's gone, gone largely unnoticed. You know what I'm saying? You just see like how many times Prince Paul is like, oh, I've never talked about this. And like, I'm going to have public emotions now if you, if you don't give me a minute. Yeah. And Dante having genuine emotional reactions. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I don't. I'm, I don't know Dante extremely well. I, he's somebody that I respect profoundly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that might be the first time he's ever been like that in public. I think a lot of people that know him personally have have never seen that side of him before. I I think that's true. I, but you know, like part part of part of what's exciting about podcasting is that like there's no rules to it, and it's long form and like where what and like i i can't imagine what platform dante would have had the capacity to be emotional on before you know cuz like let's say if i had had him on secret skin and that's just one episode you're talking to a person like you you're only ever going to really get to the surface of most things you know like how, how would you even focus that and and but like being able to sit and and unpack like when when you do when you do 12 episodes covering people's catalog like you're in a, you're also unpacking their life mm-hmm. that's right and and i'm not sure if either any of either of those three men had been in that position before where like they were challenged to unpack their life or you invited know? or given the opportunity or it, it, that's what I'm saying. Like, it feels like these are people that nobody cared enough to ask them. Just like what you're talking about, like the, these these like hundreds of thousands of people that lived in Robert Taylor homes over the course of, of, of half a century. You know what I'm saying? Like, the, these are people. But it's like, it feels like nobody, not feels like, nobody has ever cared enough to ask them to document over the course of 12 episodes. Like, can you walk us through every stage of this amazing life that you've lived and career that you've had. And and I, I do think I do think people do I think people would have cared to ask if they had thought about doing it with this sort of vehicle. Mm-hmm. You know? Um and even me, like I I borrowed this con I don't know if I've told you this, but I borrowed this concept from this guy uh, in the wrestling media, he does this with like wrestling personalities that have been around forever. No, um, yeah, yeah. I brought I brought it from from them because like this one is with this guy who was like executive producer of WWF for like twenty five years or something. So like they'll talk about uh, WrestleMania twelve, WrestleMania thirteen, WrestleMania fourteen, SummerSlam ninety two, SummerSlam ninety three, because he was back there like with you know with the talent putting the matches together like understanding what storylines they were trying to to so you know 
seeing him do that with them, it was like, oh, this is perfect. Like, it's it's a way to like, you know, just 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 make it clear that you want to talk to somebody about not just one thing, but all the things, and give them the room to stretch their legs out and really get into the nitty gritty of each thing. Like each episode, we can sit completely in this one project and talk about it and give it like as much reverence as they can muster um in that moment and it's fucking exhausting for him too it is it's exhausting like mm. prince paul would be really tired after mm. we talked uh because it's it's i can say hey we're going to talk about prince among thieves and that means that he might give it a spin and listen to it but when i'm asking him stories like he's telling me about like how big was be you know biggie was supposed to play a character and he almost and he was gonna go talk to him about doing it the night he got killed you know like and he's told that story before but to tell it in the context of all of the work he put into that project right right you know like it, and where he was at in his career at that particular moment and how he mm-hmm. felt like, you know, that he built this thing, helped build this thing with all these amazing people. And he felt like they walked away from him and mm-hmm. the heartbreak of watching that thing break up and fall apart. And yeah, man. And so then, yeah, diving into that and then that biggie moment. Yeah, that was a that yeah. was a that was a major. Yeah. So, I, you know, every like it wears people out. You know, especially because like they've all said too, none of these people look back. They don't do that. They look mm-hmm. forward. They they on to the next thing. So like it's it's really a big ask for them to go back 10, 15, 20 years and sit and unpack shit. I was gonna ask, like, what what is one of the myths? So this is driven by curiosity, and you've had a chance now to sit with three of them. I would imagine, so the, the, the shorter kind of quicker question is like, I would imagine there's a dream list. Mm-hmm, of course. Who are some, can you share some of the people on the dream list or, or uh, is that? RZA, RZA is like the golden God guest. Like okay. if I could pick that man's brain, I, I mean, that's, I would, you know, I'd want to do 24 episodes <laughs> with RZA. Um, Q-tip, of course. Yeah. Same level. Like, please let you know let allow me to ask every question i have about midnight marauders you know what i'm saying like um but then there's lower key people like i'd love to talk to monica lynch mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying like because she turns out she was a real marketing genius behind some of the stuff they were doing at tommy boy and like i imagine a lot of her stories would sound like dante's like in terms of just being around so many different classic albums and, 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 you know, legendary artists, you know? So you, you've talked about the fact that like longevity is such a huge feat and it's like one of the things to be, and that curiosity is what drives the podcast. So what's the main thing that you've learned from talking to these people that have had long careers? I do think that main, that main lesson that keeps getting, it keeps getting repeated to me is that these people don't look back. And so, like, in one sense, that makes me a little anxious about asking people to. And it also makes me wonder if the fact that I do like to look back holds me back (laughs) in some way. Um, But that is the one consistent thing Hmm. about all of them. I mean, aside from, you know, being three dudes from New York, um, the one consistent thing is that all of them are all like none of them ever dwelled on what came before. They're always on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. 
Amazing. Well, man, I appreciate it. I feel like we could do these. Matter of fact, me and you could have a podcast of just I mean, the two I, of us. Maybe we should. I mean, I think I think that's that's not that's that's a great idea, actually. So I don't know. We should talk about maybe, you know, maybe tapping back in and and you know, every couple of weeks or so. Just, you know, maybe we could both do each other's again or I don't yeah, know. Man. But we can we can that's that's something I don't think we should leave on the table. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I appreciate it. It doesn't feel like it's been two years since we talked. It, yeah, the world stopped, man. So, you know, it doesn't feel like it's been a lot of time at all. But uh, it's, it's good to speak with you. Yeah, man. I appreciate you. Love you. Yeah. Talk soon. Appreciate some. you, too. Love you back, brother. Much love to my dear friend, Open Mike Eagle, for being so generous with his time and insights and wisdom and just sharing so much. Uh, don't forget to check out part one of this conversation, which drops on Wednesday on his Secret Skin podcast. Also check out all of the stuff that they do at, at Stony Island Audio, which is Mike Eagle's podcast network. My man Blueprint has a show over there, uh, along with Elogic called Super Duty Tough Work. Uh, Sean Kantrowitz has two podcasts over there. One is called The Questions, and I was on that podcast recently. Had a good time talking to him. Also, Can't Knock the Shuffle, which I hope to be on the next series or the next uh, season of that show. Uh, check out Dad Bob Rap Pod. Check out the Fatherhood podcast with DJ EFN. A lot of dope stuff happening on uh, Stony Island Audio Network. Uh, Want to give a special shout out also to the Zakat Foundation. Make sure to check them out and find something and find a way to give back and know that you're doing it with people that do it with a lot of love and care and creativity. And if you're like me and you have realized that it's you now are going to allow yourself to do the self-care of doing some therapy, head to BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P dot com slash travelers. Get started on a mental health journey. You got nothing to lose but but these uh, confusion and anxiety and depression and uh, lack of clarity. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I couldn't recommend it more highly. And when you use that particular link, betterhelp.com slash travelers, they make a contribution to the show. And always, we, as always, we appreciate it all. Uh, special thanks to Mansour Panawala, to Amna Mirza, to uh, Mark from Medina Hip Hop, to Darren Washington, to Aida Rashid, to DJ Last Word. Special thanks to everybody that's helped uh, make this podcast a reality. Amir Rahman. There's a lot of people that have just helped. You know what I'm saying? And I appreciate it all very, very much. Uh, the producer of this show is Brendan BK1 Kelly, and it is a production of Travelers Media. Much love to you all. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.